Welcome to this episode of Yahoo Finance Presents. I'm Julia LaRoche, and I'm so pleased to bring in our guest today, Chamath Palihapitiya. He's the CEO of Social Capital, a part owner in the Golden State Warriors and the chairman of Virgin Galactic. And he's also on a mission to build this generation's Berkshire Hathaway. And some even say that he's the next Warren Buffett. Chamath, I'm so happy to bring you in. Hi, nice to see you, Julia. All right. Well, first of all, I think it would be really helpful for our viewers to get to know you a bit. You have this really incredible life story. If we could just get a bit more context, uh, your family was an immigrant family. You grew up in Canada on welfare. You have made it to the top. Uh, you were an executive at AOL, Facebook. You started Social Capital with this mission to solve really hard problems as it relates to society. I was hoping you could share your worldview, how your life experiences even the life experiences in the last three months maybe have changed or shifted. What is that view for you? Well, um, there is a the best way to describe this, if you want to think about it visually, is um, there's a game show called The Price is Right. And um, one of the games is called Plinko. And what happens is a person climbs up to the top of this sort of stadium and drops a Plinko chip and it goes through all these different pegs and Sometimes it lands on zero and sometimes it lands on 100 and uh, sometimes it can land on 10,000 um, or, you know, the equivalent is like the wheel of fortune example where you spin the wheel. I think that uh, a lot of people start with basically, you know, not much to lose and everything to gain. I was one of those people um, and I was one of the lucky ones where the Plinko chip landed in the right place and through a combination of you know, honestly, some of my own hard work, but a lot of societal help, uh, social programs that were there for me and my family, whether it was, you know, financial assistance through welfare or the ability to pay for university. You know, I, I paid $10,000 a year to go to one of the best schools in the world, the University of Waterloo. Um, universal healthcare. My father was a long-term diabetic, ultimately died of complications from diabetes, but it didn't bankrupt us. So, I'm this, uh, you know, representation of what a lot of people are, which is potential, and uh, but where circumstance went right. And uh, I would just really like to be a part of the combination where I help the circumstance part of the equation so that many more people's potential can be uncovered. Thank you for sharing that. And I guess if you fast forward to today, just given kind of the current environment we're in, We've been going through in the last three months a health crisis, an economic crisis, and now a social crisis as it relates to racial inequality. We have a lot of challenges that we're facing as a society. Do you see opportunity for young people who might be coming up? Uh, is there that opportunity for them to you know, achieve the highest level? I don't think it's, um, it's, it's not nearly the same way that it was before. And the reason is because um, we just don't have a very good equal distribution of opportunities anymore. And I think that, that the biggest problem with it is that we've allowed many of these nonprofit industries that should be there to help people act as sort of, you know, essentially quasi for profit industries, but then they don't deliver the ROI that a shareholder driven version of that industry would. So, you know, you look at education or healthcare, those are two great examples where. There's no reason why a COVID test should cost $800,000. And you can go on Twitter and you can see all these bills where you think to yourself, um, 
how is it possible that it takes $800,000 of cost to basically take a Q-tip and put it in somebody's nose and run it through a centrifuge? It doesn't. It's just that the industry is set up in a way where these weird perverted economic incentives um, have gone unregulated and unchecked. Or you look at education where you've taken a nonprofit commodity and you've made it a luxury good and you charge people forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year, um, but then you graduate them into a job market that doesn't really give them a commensurate way to earn back the money that they paid into the system. So is the system set up in a way where you can achieve the same outcomes as before? The answer is no. I think that you actually have to have a move towards more capitalism, not less. We're in this weird sort of like nether state right now where people don't believe in capitalism, which I understand because it's largely been, you know, perverted by a few. The, you know, we've financialized every kind of asset and industry possible. But a more accountable form of capitalism, more progressive form of capitalism can actually make money for shareholders, but return more value to people. And by the way, Julia, the best example of this are tech companies, because mm. tech companies have created this massive deflationary cycle in consumer expectations. You know, there's not a single person where you said, will Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon give you more for more in the future or it give you more for less in the future? The answer is always the latter. But if you then changed Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and instead said hospitals or education, you'd probably say we're going to get less for more. And so I actually think we need to sort of find a different way to incentivize a more progressive form of company running and a more transparent form of capitalism that I think can serve people better. Yeah, a lot of things to unpack there, Chamath. It actually um, just reminded me of what you wrote in your annual shareholder letter. I'm just going to quote a little bit from it and then we can uh, talk about it. You said, it's now most useful to go to the punchline. The Gilded Age seems to have so many similarities with today, both economic and societal. Um, you talked about the Gilded Age and then you tied it in with what we're going through right now with big tech. Walk us through what those changes could look like, those progressive changes, where we could be headed as a society. So I think the you know there's a there's a, a pendulum in the world and it swings between two poles, and you can take a lot of markets or um, a lot of industries, a lot of ideals, and basically characterize them in that context. So for example, you know we are in a massive move towards a more um, socialist definition of how society should work, and that is essentially the pendulum swinging away from trickle-down, top-down economics and effectively swinging towards a bottoms-up reallocation of you know, social services and um, the quality they deliver and the prices in which they should deliver them at. Similarly, if you look at technology, you know, we've had a pendulum that swung between aggregated mega monolithic companies and highly fragmented disaggregated services. And the reality is that right now, I think that we are firmly in the motion of swinging things towards um, disaggregation. So what that means as a society is social programs are changing. Um, I think what that means is that we're going to have a lot more things given to people um, at lower and lower cost. And those things will be consumed by many companies who can give that to consumers versus the few companies doing it. So what it means for tech is probably that it gets regulated, it gets taxed, um, it basically gets broken up. Um, and that's sort of more a reflection of 
the moral temperature of society than it is on, um, you know, anything necessarily nefarious that these tech businesses are going to do or have done. It's just that I think people are tired of a few companies owning and controlling too much of the real estate and surface area. It's just kind of where we're headed right now. I, I do want to bring this up um, because I know you've talked about it in the past and I was hoping maybe you could weigh in here. Facebook, there's a lot of uh, talk about Facebook these days. I think there's this campaign right now. You have 300 companies who have paused their advertising in the month of July. It's called the Stop Hate for Profit campaign. You worked at Facebook uh, back in 2007 and it, I believe it was a Stanford talk that you kind of expressed maybe a bit of regret. I don't know if that's the right word, but um, you kind of talked about maybe the social networks in general kind of tearing at the social fabric. I would just like to get your update um, on Facebook today. So um, maybe to go back to this pendulum analogy, um, if you look at what happened in cable news or uh, traditional broadcast television, I think it's really instructive. In the 1940s and 50s, we had you know initially three mega stations, NBC, CBS, ABC. And then over the course of the next 60 or 70 years, through a combination of deregulation and legislation and uh, government incentives, as well as economic incentives by, uh, by different you know, capital market participants, what we saw was an explosion of content. And what we saw were consumers who initially felt that three stations were enough, realized that they wanted 30 and then 300 and now 3,000. And I think that's exactly what's happening online because we started at a place where there's there were really you know two or three major outlets, and those two or three major outlets had to serve everybody. And what I think we're finding is that it's basically impossible to serve everybody with the same product. That there is no Swiss Army knife approach that works. And so what happens if you ask me is what I see happening right now is that Twitter tends to be pivoting more towards the liberal left. Facebook tends to be pivoting more towards um, the right and the libertarian, um, at least in America. Um, and I think different products, you know, TikTok, I think is firmly less about a political persuasion, but more of an age demographic persuasion and largely Gen Z with some millennials. And then, you know, folks like me who want to pretend we're still millennials. Um, but the reality is that there, there is this really interesting, um, disaggregation that's happening in media. And, you know, these companies are media companies. Um, and I think that governments will regulate them as such. But as that happens, other products and services will emerge that fit niche audiences that meet the narratives that, frankly, they want to hear um, in ways that I think that's just the unfortunate reality of where we are as a society, which is that it's hard um, to find a way in a de-escalated manner to question your assumptions without feeling attacked. And until we fix that problem, which is more sort of a you know, a moral decision by society, um, these products will get more and more uh, fragmented and serve more and more niche audiences with specific kinds of content. It's interesting, the, the fragmentation, the niche audiences. Does that also, I mean, I'm just kind of throwing this out here, does that open up maybe an investment opportunity? Is that something, I mean, I don't think that would be something you're interested in, but I, I would be curious if that's something that would be of interest from an investment perspective, looking for maybe more niche areas. It actually is. I don't. I don't think that you'll see me doing a lot of it. It's not something that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about. I, I tend to prefer uh, sort of like emerging markets that I think are early but have been de-risked that now just need execution. Um, this is a market where I actually think there is a tremendous amount of market risk. That's 
a kind of risk I don't like underwriting. So what do I mean by that? You know, I spent a lot of time helping build Facebook, um, but the real problem that Facebook has isn't necessarily about Facebook, but it's that consumer sentiment and consumer desires change and they ebb and they flow and they can be, you know, very peculiar and, um, you know, uh, highly hard to predict. And so you're constantly chasing. It's kind of having like a hit record and trying to land a, another hit song after a hit record. It's very, very hard. So that kind of market risk is not that exciting to me. Other people, I think, will underwrite it. Um, but I think what the result will be are just an enormous number of outlets that all have niche audiences that then you find a different and interesting way of pulling together. Right. Well, I do want to turn um, subjects a bit. So one thing that a lot of people like about you, Chamath, is just the way you talk and the way it resonates with people. And the example of late is probably the, the interview that you did on CNBC around the time of the bailouts. I believe it was early April, April if I recall correctly. And, and it went viral. And we've had the, that, that's gone through. Now we have, you know, the Fed with different credit facilities, all of these different forces at play trying to stem, I guess, the, the damage that's been done by the COVID-19 pandemic. I would like to get your view um, as, you know, maybe a market participant and an investor. Are we setting ourselves up for some long-term pain here? Are we actually solving the, the issues? I think that there's not enough first principles thinking by um, the Federal Reserve and Treasury. Um, if you if you were to think about this problem from first principles, you would first just look at GDP and say, where is GDP coming from? So a different way of answering this question is, if I asked you to solve climate change, Julia, the first thing you'd probably do is ask somebody, okay, well, what are the sources of climate change, right? Like, you know, there's no point solving, uh, I don't know, a random long tail problem if it doesn't generate the largest amount of carbon output into the atmosphere. Similarly, if you look at and ask the question, where does GDP come from? The majority of GDP in the United States has always come from consumers. And it's consumer spending. And we've always been a consumer-led economy, which is what is really beautiful about the United States and our capitalist model and why it tends to work and how we've inoculated ourselves from corruption and kleptocracy and you know the things that, that frankly plague many other countries, including developed Western countries. So from a first principles basis, if you were trying to make sure that consumers continue to spend because you wanted to see GDP go up, you'd focus on income in their hands. And what you would do is probably give them enough money so that the amount of money they had exceeded the amount of money they needed to live. And the minute that that happens, then what you would see are people then spending those excess dollars in the marketplace. That would then go to businesses who would then staff up and rehire, who would then reactivate their supply chain, who would then you know, staff up and rehire and activate their supply chain on and on down the line. And what you would have is a slow rebuilding of the economic vitality of America. Instead, we didn't think from first principles. And we did what we've been doing for the last 40 years, which is this top-down idea that trickle-down economics works. And it doesn't work anymore. Um, we have had this deflationary super cycle because of tech that gives consumers a massive incentive to not spend money because they don't care about buying clothes anymore. That's why you buy clothes at, you know, Zara and Forever 21 versus, you know, The Gap, because you'd rather buy a $5 pair of pants that you throw away than a $15 or $20 pair of pants. 
you know? So we've been in this massive deflationary super cycle for a while. So giving money at the top and hoping that it gets to the consumer, it's just a failed idea. It's a failed, um, it's a failed concept that's had its day. So, yeah. you know, my frustration is that folks aren't realizing this because if you did, what you'd do is you'd put a lot more money into the hands of consumers and you'd wait for those dollars to flow up into the companies. And instead, what we did was we gave hundreds of billions of dollars in all kinds of random ways, and it's all largely going to go to waste. And it distorts the market. It makes it very hard to be anything except long the market. I'm long the market, and I have cash. Would I love to be isolating certain things that I think are you know, not set up for success or trying to buy things cheap? Sure, but it's not possible right now. Right. And of course, not everyone's exposed to the market. So it makes you also wonder, are we exacerbating inequality in our country through these programs? No, we fundamentally are. And that's the other thing. You know, it's a fallacy that, um, you know, retail Main Street owns equities. And, you know, whatever you want to think about Robin Hood or all of these other things, you know, DDTG, all this stuff, these are like long tail, small phenomena. Um, unfortunately, not enough retail investors own a participation in the equity markets of the United States. And so, you know, when equity markets go up, it disproportionately helps institutional money and multi-generational money. And that doesn't have a real net positive impact to average normal people. That's why I think, again, putting money in the hands of those folks would have a much more positive impact. Mm -hmm. I also want to talk about leadership. Um, maybe uh, there might be even, you know, we could probably say, safe to say there's been a void of leadership as of late, but I'm talking about future leadership. And I just want to read a tweet that you put out. You said, quote, earlier this year, I decided to donate to the Democrats whenever Trump did something cruel, reckless, or strategically incomprehensible. He has exceeded all my expectations. He is responsible for 750,000 to the Dems and counting. And in a reply tweet to that, um, because somebody said, even Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you said, quote, I love AOC. She will be president one day. I will be there when she's ready. I was hoping you could speak to um, maybe what the future of leadership in this country could look like, should look like. Um, I think that um, what we're seeing right now is the disintegration of both the Democratic and Republican parties. And I think that, broadly speaking, that disintegration is, is really uh, a good thing. I uh, have no party affiliation. Um, I really consider myself an independent, and I value that independence. And I would vote for a Republican. Um, I would vote for a Democrat. Um, I try to vote a person at a point in time. And right now, you know, and my belief has largely been the following, Julia, which is that, you know, politicians at their best are do no harm. Um, because the real things that move society forward are incentives. And incentives are best designed by people who are experts of policy, not experts of politics. And policy people are folks that have decided to study governance their whole lives because they um, care about it. And they understand how incentives can drive your and my and other people's behavior. So what I would love is uh, a political class, broadly speaking, across both aisles, who just get out of the way um, and who don't make things worse and who allow us to do what we're all capable of doing, which is taking care of ourselves and fending for ourselves. And at the edges, you know, design incentives so that we can take care of ourselves in a more humane and you know thoughtful way. 
So in that context, um, you know, I uh, I spend a lot of time trying to understand where the parties are going. And I think what's happening is that the Republican Party is going to get torn apart because of uh, people's affiliation or lack of affiliation with Donald Trump. Similarly, I think the Democrats are, um, you know, too beholden to a, a, you know, a gerontocracy class that's frankly fading away. Um, it's the reason they lost the election. And I think people are very perceptive of that. So why is AOC interesting to me? Because I think she represents a standard bearer of the movement in the left. By the way, I also think that there's going to be standard bearers, uh, young dynamic leaders in the right that do the same thing. And what that's going to do is actually create a movement among centrists. And so, you know, the thing I didn't tweet out is, uh, I think AOC is wonderful. I think what she stands for is really unique and special. I also think I would say the same thing about a Republican, a young dynamic personality who has a modern view of economic theory and, you know, social programs, which is sorely needed. But then what will happen when both of those two poles exist at scale is that there is an opportunity for somebody down the middle to unify the country. Um, so I think the pendulum is swinging towards progressives and then it'll swing back to centrism. I think centrism is where most of the good will be done. Um, but that's sort of my thoughts. Uh, but I think AOC is spectacular. Well, you know, you've certainly um, made a name for yourself and you have people who listen to you and respect your views. I was wondering, Chamath, when you look at social capital and just your broader ambitions, where do you see the ability and how do you see your ability to really have impact and influence and make change when it comes to some of the most pressing problems? You open up your website, the first thing is that you're out to solve the world's hardest problems. Where do you see the opportunity? Well, I just think that there are a lot of markets that, frankly, um, prevent progress. Um, they they just aren't run in a logical way uh, that you would run them <clears throat> if you were trying to basically maximize long-term opportunity. Um, I think too many industries are run for short-term cash flow, and that speaks to, frankly, you know, the markets that have been distorted, that are too financialized, that frankly are run by financial engineers and not enough true engineers. Um, so I like to look at markets that I think, again, are at the very early stages of having been de-risked from a market adoption perspective and now just need execution risk. Um, I love businesses like that. That's sort of why you know I fell in love with Amazon very early on. Um, and I sold all my Facebook stock in 2014 and people just thought I was an idiot. I presented uh, a $3 trillion market cap case on Amazon in front of 5,000 people at the Lincoln Center for Arizona, and I was laughed off the stage. Um, I presented a Tesla case when the stock was $200, um, and I was laughed off stage. Um, so I invested in the Warriors, and I was laughed. You know, Everybody around me thought I was a complete idiot. Um, and it's because I, I really love opportunities to invest in markets that are de-risked but have not yet scaled. So um, where am I looking now? Um, to be very honest with you, I think climate change is the single biggest economic opportunity of our lifetime. Um, energy, um, clean energy, decarbonization. Um, I still think there's a lot of opportunity in space. Um, people ask me, by the way, why space? And the reason is that in order to do things in space well, you're developing a platform uh, of technologies that frankly allow you to do incredible things, not just in space, but then as a result on the earth. Um, and when you look at tremendous advances in computing and other things, material science, 
a lot of it was because of our space program. And so, you know, I'm pretty convinced that investing in space will yield enormously interesting outcomes. Um, but those are markets where I'm spending a lot of time. In terms of the future, for me, um, you know, my biggest thing is that I really wanted to build a platform that allows not just myself to benefit, but other people who share my worldview. And, um, you know, I can't claim that it's right, but I can definitively claim that it's mine and that there's a lot of other people that share, you know, some percentage of the same views that I do. Yet they're largely locked out of the financial opportunity to participate from that worldview. So my whole goal is take the money that I have. Um, I've done a pretty decent job of proving to myself that I can invest in all kinds of very disparate markets and do it well, and now try to do it at scale in a way that is affecting a worldview that other people can choose to invest behind if they agree. And that would be the goal is that, you know, my, my, uh, my ambition would be to try to take the company public at some point if I could and you know, frankly, give retail uh, investors a chance to stand shoulder to shoulder beside me, um, you know, to hold annual meetings, to, you know, see people that have owned the stock for 20 or 30 years and have done well for them and their family. Um, it would be an enormous sense of accomplishment for me. Mm-hmm. Well, Chamath, if you don't mind, I'll ask you one more question. And I remember the Stone conferences where you talked about Tesla and Amazon. And I don't think anyone laughed you off stage. Well, at least I don't remember that. I remember um, you caught a lot of people's attention, that's for sure. You just talked about the retail investor standing shoulder to shoulder. I would just like to get your view. Um, what is kind of an uncomfortable truth or truths as it relates to Silicon Valley? Maybe it's big tech or it could be a venture capital or, or hedge funds. I don't I don't think you define yourself as a hedge fund manager anymore or a venture capitalist. I think the uncomfortable truth about, you know, the Silicon Valley ecosystem is that it's like every other market, which is that there is a period where um, we are defined by zealots, um, highly ambitious, very unique individuals that are there with no expectation of monetary reward. Um, I think I was lucky to be there at the tail end of that, because once the dot-com bubble burst, I mean, honestly, Julia, there was nobody here. And uh, this is a laughingstock. And, you know, I came at the tail end of it. So, um, you know, I wasn't chasing money necessarily. Uh, There was no money to be had (laughs) because the stock market had imploded. Um, But then when a market evolves, what happens is those same zealots do get remunerated. And then it attracts all kinds of actors who then focus on the money. And we're firmly in that second phase. And I don't know what corrects that, but Silicon Valley is no better than anybody else. And we're no smarter than anybody else. And in fact, we're probably, um, you know, morally a little bit um, less strong than other markets, because in other places and other sectors of the economy, you've had to be there because you loved it. Um, And here, I think a lot of people are there because they think they're going to get paid. And frankly, look, a lot of the big tech companies, um, they green mail their employees because they know that these stock options can be so worthwhile that they'd rather them stay at their company and do nothing than go and do something useful because it just allows them to preserve market cap. So that's the that's the real kind of honest truth about what Silicon Valley is, which is like we're like everybody else. We are uh, we go through phases of inferiority like everybody else. We are as greedy as other people, um, and mostly we're no better than anybody else. Um, I just think that that you know everybody except Silicon Valley has gotten the memo. So. 
Well, Chamath Palihapitiya, the CEO of Social Capital, owner of the Golden State Warriors, and chairman of Virgin Galactic, I thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Yahoo Finance Presents. Thanks, Julie.